How is the U.S. Army adapting to modern warfare? This is Brief Before Impact. Hey, welcome everyone to this episode. I am Matt Parker. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to start a six-part series. That's by far my longest series I've ever uh, put together. And what we're going to do over the next six weeks is go through each of America's military branches, um, breaking down just really where do these branches currently stand in their ability to um, to fight wars. And this will include the most recent branch, uh, the U.S. Space Force, which is really in its infancy, just a, a couple of years old now. But we're going to go through each of these branches and talking about over uh, the last 20 years of fighting counterterrorism, how we're shifting away from that in our strategy as a country, moving to what we call like near peer conflicts, basically uh, global powers versus global powers and what our military is doing to adapt its tactics uh, to uh, evaluate and change its strategy and how America can succeed in those kind of and that kind of warfare moving forward. But before we start breaking down the U.S. Army, we're going to be evaluating uh, three kind of key things this evening. I'm going to talk about some lessons that the, the Army has learned by evaluating the you know, war in Ukraine and kind of what notes it can make on how it can uh, evaluate its own tactics and strategy as well. Additionally, we're going to s reveal kind of how the Army is changing and update, updating its uh, tactics on the ground as we look towards facing uh, more of those near-peer adversaries like Russia and like China um, as compared to just fighting counterterrorism. Lastly, we're going to highlight a couple of uh, really interesting pieces of technology that are being produced, um, maybe not necessarily implemented, but still kind of in that infancy uh, for the you know, future conflicts and pretty high-speed stuff. But let me take a quick ad break, and then we'll get started. All right, welcome back, everyone. So, like I mentioned, we're going to start with some lessons that our military strategists are noting from the war in Ukraine. And we've already seen uh, Army training being changed and shifting uh, based upon the feedback that we're seeing in Ukraine. U.S. leaders reportedly noted that in the Russia's initial multi-pronged assault in Ukraine, commanders consistently failed to provide airstrikes and support their ground troops needed to move into key cities, such as Kiev. This is reporting from military.com. Now, the, that failure led the Russian troops bombing cities from the outskirts, which was hitting hospitals, apartment buildings, and other structures and killing civilians. So it's their inability to effectively um, provide airstrikes and support for those ground troops led to this type of indiscriminate bombing. So... According to Brigadier General Kurt Taylor, uh, we'll be very focused on how to fight against an adversary that is willing to destroy infrastructure because that's how we think our adversaries are going to fight. We've got to be prepared for urban combat where we have an adversary that is indiscriminately firing artillery. Uh, the Secretary of the Army, actually, Christine Wormuth, uh, she made a note that the training also underscored some of these lessons that we're seeing in the war in Ukraine. Quote, as we're watching what's happening to the Russians now, it's informative for us to think about what is right from a modernization standpoint. For example, noting that some of the U.S. tanks are very heavy 
and the terrain in Europe is muddier, you know, not like that hard packed sand of the desert in the Middle East that we're so accustomed to. Uh, the army, she said, has to determine what's the right balance between the mobility of a tank, the survivability of a tank, and the lethality of a tank. If you want to make a more mobile, you make it lighter, but that also makes it less survivable. And you have to decide where you're going to take the risk. And so this is what the army and the other branches are doing, essentially, is the focus on the, the Middle East region. Uh, not that that's going to go away in, entirely by any means. However, there has to be a, a more of a more of attention and resources being focused towards those kind of great power competition. You've heard me talk about this. Basically, just who are our global adversaries with the economic means to uh, deploy a traditional, more conventional style of warfare, whether that's Europe or Russia invading other parts of Eastern Europe or China taking or taking a strike at Taiwan, for example. There's actually a really terrific piece uh, from the Modern War Institute at West Point kind of highlighting how the U.S. will fight and aid our partners in, in kind of defensive tactics against an invading aggressor because the, our authors is suggesting that we're, we as a country or military is going to have to um, approach how we actually defend terrain from a different perspective and, and while we aid our partners, helping them do that as well. Uh, the character of defense in this case is also different from a typical U.S. military assumptions. So once a great power takes territory, its military forces tend to leave only under their own volition, as shown by the results of the 2014 Russian invasion of Ukraine and the 2008 Russian invasion of Georgia. So this means any land that is traded for time may be traded on a kind of semi-permanent basis. And additionally, with the speed of modern mechanized warfare, think about like tanks and trucks, trading land can create a rapid cascade effect. So this is where the author is kind of highlighting what will have to change. Uh, a maneuver-based defense requires significant command and control abilities. And as the first few days of the Ukraine conflict have shown, a great power aggressor is likely to target the assets that enable effective command and control. As a, and so as a result, for our partner nations, America's partner nations, the focus must be preparing for a forward defense of an indefinite duration. What he is arguing here is if territory is to be swamped you know, between, we're going to use Russia and Ukraine, Russia is trying to take over certain pieces of key territory. And once it takes them, we'll only leave them under its own decision, perhaps to continue movement or to reposition its troops on another target. The author is suggesting that from a defensive perspective, how, how to maintain territory, it has to be from a maneuver-based perspective. It can't be, uh, yeah, it has to be just recognizing that these troops to maintain territory will have to maneuver in order to do that rather than just being isolated. And it's really important in order to maintain the maneuver basis defense that command and control abilities are not diminished, meaning a commander can communicate with his troops on the ground of what they need to do. And this is why Russia targeted early on in the war certain command and control uh, infrastructure. Think about radars or communication towers, for example. 
Now back to the back to the analysis. Stopping a great power enemy at or near its initial point of attack. It's the only way to guarantee the territorial integrity of the country. Now this requires a different pr- approach to defense that is usually thought of by the U.S. military, wherein the basis of defense is maneuver, not fortification, and the purpose of defense is to rapidly transition to the offensive. So this in turn means when aiding partner nations, America should think about how helping them prepare the infrastructure necessary to turn means to the necessary infrastructure necessary for defense include leveraging urban and subterranean spaces. So for U.S. forces that are deployed for to deter whether it's Russian, Chinese, or Iranian aggression, this lesson also conveys a very important truth. Should our adversaries wish to test our resolve, it will be while U.S. forces are forward positioned for the purpose of deterrence or reassuring a partner. Falling back from that position would hurt the United States in the information space while preempting such as a test of resolve through the offensive reaction would risk unpalatable escalation. And this means for our sake and America's training and education has to be focused more on thinking about the requirements of maintaining and successfully holding a static and prepared defense not just for our partners, but for our forces as well. I've talked a a bit offline with friends about this, uh, what kind of conflicts I believe we're going to see moving forward between great powers. And I argue that it will, in the case of like Russia and Ukraine, I think it's a great case study for this. What is really at stake here is you could call it an ungoverned territory or a, a territorial dispute. You know, Russia says Crimea and the Donbass region are in fact Russian. Now, Putin has obviously argued that all of Ukraine is originally Russia anyway, so the whole country is essentially uh, Russia. But what it really comes down to is recognizing the truth on the ground. And the fact is, since 2014, Crimea and the Donbass region have effectively been ungoverned territory. And this is what I think disputes are going to be about. And this is brings back to the analysis of how future kind of defensive-based uh, strategy is going to be needed to be implemented uh, as the United States fights that type of battle and supports its its partners, um, whether it's in Eastern Ukraine or Eastern Europe, for example, or in the South Pacific, uh, of how to maintain those types of um, those forces in that scenario. So these are some of the lessons that have been already um learned from Ukraine and the war against Russia and that the United States' army is starting to implement, at least starting to ask these certain questions of how can we remain uh, an agile force able to both fight counterterrorist threats as well as that kind of near-peer competition and those um, the balancing act of what is necessary, what is effective, that will be implemented through all units across the U.S. Army, uh, whether it's uh, evaluating the, the speed and size of a tank or a special operations units deciding what kind of tactics they will have to implement in order to remain effective. Which moves us into uh, the second piece of this uh, episode is how are U.S. Army units essentially changing and adapting their own tactics on the ground in order to fight back against an, a near-peer adversary. And there's an important distinction to be made 
one of before I start listing these out is that whenever we talk about strategy or tactics, these are two different things. They're not they're not synonymous, but they overlap. So strategy is typically created by your command or your policymakers, for example. Um, at the very top, you command your chief, the president of the United States says, you know, um, we're going to make up a hypothetical scenario and say um, the United States was to invade Ukraine tomorrow. Uh, the end state that the commander in chief could have put out says, I want all American troops to that we're deploying to push all Russian troops out of Ukraine's sovereign borders. You know, very blanket statement here. That is essentially strategy. Now, the tactics come down to the actual units on the ground. How do we, in fact, effectively reach that end state? How do we push all these Russian troops out of Ukraine? The U.S. Army's um, units look at this differently from the Marines and the Navy, all based upon their uh, what their jobs are supposed to be, for example. We're going to talk about special operation units, uh, since that's my background, of how they're approaching this kind of new um, near-peer competition warfare. Because for so many years, special operation units have really been seen as kind of the tip of the spear when it came to the war on terror in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Africa, and other other places. And the reality is, though, that special operation units have had a history of supporting the conventional military in what you could call perhaps regular conflicts or at least near-peer conflicts. Because, in fact, this is what these types of near-peer conflicts look like when you're thinking United States versus Russia, United States versus China, for example. This will be a much more of a conventional fight that you would imagine versus uh, what we've seen in the last 20 years of counterterrorism. You know, militias or... Taliban, Al Qaeda, no flags, wearing civilian looking clothes, blending in the civilian population, uh, not a very advanced uh, force in terms of their technology versus, you know, the Chinese military. Right. So that's that's how we can think about this. So as special operation units have to um, morph into uh, then how they can continue supporting their regular military counterparts. There was a recent report on kind of the strategic value in the era of great power competition that came from the U.S. Special Operations Command. And it identified six ways the Army special operators could contribute in a war with Russia and China. So their mission sets would include the following. Long-range infiltration in denied areas. Second, enable deep area fires. That means like um, supporting uh, artillery that well behind enemy lines. So artillery shooting from you know several kilometers away, special operation units uh, behind enemy lines, helping provide them targeting data, right? Telling them basically where to point the guns. Third would be recruit, train, equip, and lead local guerrillas in deep areas. Something that uh, U.S. Army Special Forces Green Berets have been doing for decades now. Uh, fourth would be supporting conventional forces in close combat. Fifth, target and destroy what we call anti-access and area denial systems. And lastly, uh, using special operations command and control to converge cross-domain capabilities in deep areas. So these six war mission or these six mission sets are really versions of 
the Army Special Operations Forces capabilities that are tailored to the threats that China or Russia would pose in a war, uh, especially the ability to target these anti-access area denial systems are particularly important because these systems can integrate long-range fires, artillery, um, such as anti-aircraft systems and anti-ship missiles, uh, the powerful radar systems with the goal of negating the U.S. military's advantage, uh, especially its potent aircraft carrier fleet uh, by preventing it from operating near sensitive areas. So those um, anti-access air denial systems are protected by strong air defense systems and ground forces, and overcoming or neutralizing them would be one of the U.S. military's most important missions in a conflict as it would enable conventional forces to operate at full capacity. So Army Special Operations Forces would be central to that, especially by targeting like Moscow's anti-access area denial systems uh, around the Crimea Peninsula or China's uh, anti-access air denial systems around the South China Sea. Uh, there's a, a former Green Beret who's, who served in the Indo-Pacific. He just spoke anonymously, and, and he was uh, said there's definitely room for the Army Special Operations Forces to do this kind of uh, con- or provide this kind of support in that kind of uh, conflict. You know, saying that essentially, the in a conventional war, while you have all these conventional units of artillery and tanks and mechanized warfare and so forth, uh, helicopters and all this. Special operations can provide um, or help set those units up for success uh, by doing you know, d- behind enemy lines, denied areas, uh, support of targeting uh, enemy infrastructure that could negate the success of our conventional counterparts. And that's how special operations units would kind of um, adjust and adapt their tactics in this kind of near peer competition, kind of in the opposite of what they were doing in uh, the counterterrorism fight. Now, I wanted to highlight kind of if we're looking at away from Ukraine and more to the South Pacific, what the U.S. Army would be doing in a defense against Taiwan should China invade. This is a whole episode to itself, but I thought it'd be worth mentioning at least how it could step in. And what kind of support it could provide because our military leaders are thinking about this conflict uh, most likely more than any other at the moment. And there's a great piece written from Breaking Defense on how the U.S. Army could defend Taiwan, writing that defending the island of Taiwan from invasion would, will mean defeating a Chinese military amphibious capability that is expanding rapidly. This expansion includes eight marine brigades and significant investment in new amphibious vessels, as well as repurposed and large Coast Guard, merchant marine augmentation, and prolific maritime militia. So Chinese forces will be invading an island that has not focused enough on defense, instead buying increasingly obsolete prestige aircraft and missiles optimized for offensive strike. Now to further complicate these defense efforts, Washington's official policy of strategic ambiguity means that the United States has very limited forces on the island, ostensibly all in a training capacity. Uh, I can speak from that from a personal experience when he talks about strategic ambiguity. The America plays this very, walks this very thin line of how we support Taiwan. Yes, we recognize them as their own country. Uh, I'm one of my former teams, a trained Taiwanese special forces. This is we do these things, but we're not overtly trying to 
basically upset the China and irritate them by this relationship we have with Taiwan. I think this is to our detriment. That's a whole other topic. Continuing on. If the U.S. Army were to have to defend the island in the current status, it would face difficult and contested deployment conditions and arrive to fight alongside a Taiwanese military with whom it has limited to no experience. None of these conditions bode well for American forces facing the invasion of a peer competitor on an island they have not fortified with an ally not officially an ally and in a territory thousands of miles away from any major army bases. It is true that some of the systems being developed as part of the army's current modernization effort will be applicable both in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe. Here's a few examples. These would include like long-range precision fire systems, like the uh, extended-range cannon artillery or precision strike missile, or mobile air and missile defense and even hypersonic missiles. All these capabilities, though, they will not be sufficient to counter the Russian investments in conventional land power or deny Moscow the ability to rapidly seize and hold territory in Eastern Europe. To counter Moscow's moves, the Army needs to ensure that its future budgets maintain adequate investments and enhance capabilities for sustained land combat. I think this whole analysis really reiterates the point that one, and at least in my mind, uh, first, from a diplomatic standpoint, America needs to be far more clear than where we have been in the past on how we support our allies. And I think our allies need to push for more of a definitive stance from the United States on how we will support them, uh, especially in the case of uh, Taiwan. But secondly, another th thought from this analysis is it reiterates the point that military leaders have new developing technologies available to them. However, these new types of weapon missiles or weapon systems won't be applicable in uh, both Europe or both the South Pacific. Both of these regions require their own strategies. And more importantly, the assessment of our adversaries, militaries, Russia, Ukraine, or even Iran for that matter, they have to be holistic in the point that our strategy is aligned with the capabilities. And that is a constant updating type of assessment of where our enemies stand and how our strategy needs to adjust based upon uh, uh, the current uh, assessment of their military capabilities. And this leads us lastly into uh, some developing technology that the U.S. Army is uh, looking at with our uh, military contractors in the private sector. Uh, there's a few, there's three things I wanted to point out that I thought were particularly fascinating. First, uh, self-steering bullets. That just sounds cool to me. These are packed with tiny sensors. A 50 caliber bullet under development can change course rapidly in midair, potentially giving even a mediocre shooter sniper-like accuracy with the ability to hit moving targets with ease. Plus, while the cost of these advanced rounds is still unknown, they are sure to be cheaper than a rocket-propelled missile whose role they could sometimes fill. Uh, secondly, laser cannons. So Boeing and the Army are working on a truck-mounted laser that can zap incoming threats such as mortar shells or drones. Uh, this program has the catchy name HELMD, High Energy Laser Mobile Demonstrator. Uh, competitor Lockheed Martin is also looking for a piece of the 
Defense Department's ray gun business with its Athena system. Uh, one of the many benefits of lasers is that they can fire repeatedly for minimal cost. Just the diesel to power the truck, um, the truck-mounted generator that provides the burst of energy the laser concentrates downrange. Lastly, the plasma protection field. Uh, Boeing has filed a patent for a system that would protect vehicles from blast damage by creating plasma fields. Uh, the idea is to create an ionized airfield that would deflect the incoming blast. What it can't do is stop an incoming projectile like a rocket-propelled grenade or an anti-tank missile, but existing active, active protection systems, uh, for example, like the Army's Iron Curtain, are, are designed, designed to handle those. The Boeing system would only defend the direction of an incoming blast, like an explosion happens near your truck, and this plasma field protects you and the guys inside of it. Some pretty fascinating technology coming out of the Army and potentially we'll see in future warfare between our uh, near-peer adversaries. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this. This will be the first of six-week series looking at each of the military branches. I certainly hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact. <laughs>